This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the year in federal politics. Then, Graham Davison, a professor at Monash University and Australia's best-known urban historian, joined me to talk about his book, Hugh Stretton, Selected Writings, which he edited from Hugh Stretton's work as a public intellectual and a leading social democrat in Australia. Then finally, Professor Philomena Murray from the University of Melbourne joined me on the phone to talk about her recent trip to Brussels, as well as the latest in the Brexit negotiations and vote. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. It is 9.23 and... I'm about to speak right now with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. Hello there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Hey, last show. Oh. Well done, mate. For the year. Yeah, yeah I'm just kind of like, whoa, how did this happen? You made it. <laughs> Um, I'm not even stumbling across the line, which is good. I yeah, feel no, like yeah. I'm still alive. Looking fresh. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I'm trying my best yeah. to look alive. Um, it's very exciting and there's a lot going on because we saw the last sitting day of Parliament on Thursday last week. So I want to start off with that and then we can do a bit of a recap on the year because it's quite revealing of what has been happening this year, what happened on Thursday. And we saw immediately in the morning an extremely irate and kind of crazy uh, Scott Morrison getting up on Alan Jones, um, the echo chamber of Sydney, talking about how dangerous Bill Shorten is to our national security, to to our borders, um, you know, and and this is basically because Scott Morrison knew that they were likely to lose a vote on legislation in the House of Representatives. Yes, uh uh, I think the, uh, there's an old saying um, apocryphally attributed to Bismarck, the German Chancellor of the 19th century, that uh, laws are like sausages. It's better not to see how they are made. <laughs> and anyone looking at federal parliament on Thursday would not have been uh, particularly... <laughs> uh, it's not pretty. It was not pretty. It was not, not pretty at, at all. all. It, was a, it was an ugly display, actually, of power politics and chaos in the, the national parliament. So you're right. Um, the government uh, did try to, uh, you know, wedge Labor on national security over a bill that originally had come from the, the crossbench about trying to get kids off Nauru. Um, Labor decided to support that bill and it mm, looked like For it medical reasons. Medical this wasn't reasons. even just get all kids off. It was if two doctors say this person needs urgent medical treatment in Australia, uh, then they go over there and the minister has the right to review it. And if the minister vetoes it, it goes to an independent panel, which includes more doctors to review the minister's decision. Yep, absolutely. But I guess in common with Australian immigration policy for a very long time now, the government really saw that as um, an opportunity to play politics uh, and obviously also um, was very concerned about losing a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives. So um, in the end, the government was able to prorogue Parliament and delay that vote um, until the new year. Um, however, there was one bill passed in the federal parliament last week, um, yes. which is the very controversial uh, assistance and access bill, the so-called encryption bill. This is the bill that will allow the federal government to spy on everyone's encrypted mm-hmm. apps on their phones. 
There's uh, a backdoor entry now. A backdoor entry, a skeleton key. Uh, the provisions of the bill are actually really quite serious and concerning once you dig into them. Um, the, the, the bill will compel tech companies and indeed employees of tech companies to assist federal police, uh, state police, uh, spy agencies to build software uh, to basically to build backdoors into software, so they will, they'll actually basically be compelled to spy on on citizens. Um, mm. I think I think a very concerning bill. Um, uh, a lot of people also thought it was concerning. The tech sector is 100% against it because they think it will um, be very, very bad for Australia's international competitiveness because uh, it's directly in contravention of a lot of overseas laws, including the European uh, general privacy law. Mm, which um, is st- in stark contrast, really. In stark it's contrast. Pretty much chalk and cheese. You will now not be able to comply with European privacy law and Australian uh, spying law, um, so you'll have to make a choice about what countries you operate in if you're a tech company. So mm-hmm. that's potentially got major major implications for the tech sector. All of this was pointed out by the Labor Party in a series of speeches in the House of Representatives on Thursday, and then they voted for it. So uh, that was one of those weird ones where it's really hard to understand just what's going on with the Labor Party sometimes, but yes. Well, uh, they had such strong rhetoric, like Penny Wong, the leader of the opposition in the Senate, was saying that the government is compromising our national security by ramming through this bill before the end of parliament like it actually she went on and on and on about it for at least four days saying just how significant serious compromising important this legislation is you know that they had a bipartisan agreement which they eventually got back to later in the week which is why labor moved these amendments to the bill they were to reflect the bipartisan agreement that had been made in the national um, security committee and then they uh were pushing for those amendments to be accepted and of course they basically when push came to shove had to withdraw their amendments otherwise the legislation wouldn't have been passed because as you say ben the house of representatives finished on the dot they didn't stick around so that they could then approve these amendments which they would have had to do if the bill would be in force over the holidays no that's right labor rolled over and passed the bill so the bill will now be law um, Labor say they'll come back, uh, even in government or even in the new year, and try and extract amendments to the bill. Uh, good luck with that. Mm. Uh, but the, I mean, the point remains. When it's that- done, it's done, though, Ben. It's pretty hard to like once you've created this backdoor mechanism over the holidays. How you know how many amendments are going to tighten what you've already done? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very concerning from a civil liberties viewpoint. I mean, one of the, one of the me- measures in the bill is that uh, there's a 10-year jail term for revealing that you've been approached to build one of these spy holes, right? So we, don't, we won't even know when people in the tech sector have been approached by law mm. enforcement to, to create spying apparatus. I mean, you know, I mean... I guess in one respect it's par for the course for the Australian Labor Party, which has been uh, at pains to present itself as very strong on national security for years now. Labor, of course, also voted for the metadata retention bill. Um, uh, So this is of a piece with uh, Labor's view on spying on citizens, which is that it's okay, no worries here. Um, But even for Labor, I think this was 
a very, very disappointing vote because um, as many, many Labor parliamentarians themselves argued in Parliament, this yes. is a bad bill. Very vocally. Yeah, I mean, so it really is a really a very interesting question as why they voted for it. Mm, um, when they don't believe in it. They really seem to have been captured by the national security apparatus. Mm. Uh, they really seem to have believed the testimony given by police commissioners and ASIO types saying that, you know, we need it over Christmas because people are going dark and, you know, we won't be able to spy on the terrorists anymore and that's a national security threat. Mm. Uh, you know, most tech experts that I've looked at um, think that that's rubbish because... Any terrorist who's any good <laughs> will not be using a lot of these apps anyway. It's relatively easy to protect yourself um, with good information privacy. Of course, you don't have to use the internet when planning your terrorist attack. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, as is so common with these kind of things, what, what starts out as, I think, a reasonable effort by law enforcement agencies to try and protect ordinary citizens... Um, becomes the creep of a security state that erodes civil liberties and really poses very concerning uh, challenges for us in the future because uh, we don't know necessarily that future governments will be benign. We don't know that uh, the, the law, you know, that, that the people in charge in, in, in future years um, will have the best interests of Australian people at heart. And mm. so the, the the potential for the abuse of these very wide-reaching powers, I think, is significant. Yes, and there were many, many, many obvious hints as to what the rhetoric would have been from the government against Labor over the summer period, which is another reason why Labor sought to avoid uh, an ongoing rhetorical battle with the government. Christopher Pine tweeted something which he's since deleted about the fact that Labor would apparently allow terrorists to continue their evil work, which is his his words, by not uh, allowing this bill to go through in its current form. It's now legislation. I mean, this, this kind of really divisive and highly, like, exaggerated, hyperbolic like speaking, speech, rhetoric, writing, social posting, random press conferences from the Prime Minister, you know, berating Bill and making personal pleas to Bill, you know, please don't open up our borders, like all this kind of um, horrible rhetoric that happened on Thursday, Ben, seemed to have reached a fever pitch really in terms of the year and where we've stood in terms of, you know, like rational conversation and debate. Not a lot of rational conversation in Australian federal politics this year, Amy. It's all relative, Ben. It's all um, relative. This was was the Nadia, no doubt about that, um, of what was a pretty bad year. Yeah, um, I think Labor were desperate to avoid being wedged on national security and terrorism and they were prepared ultimately, I think, to sacrifice the civil liberties of ordinary citizens in order... To save their political skin. ..to not be be wedged over the Mm. summer break like that. Um, And you can tell that Labor's pretty sensitive about this because the backlash, particularly on social media over the weekend, was pretty intense and um, there was a lot of Labor parliamentarians scrambling for cover there. Mm. Um, So I, I think... There's even a split within the Labor Party with the left lining up to try and vote against that bill. Um, ultimately, um, the whips made them um, vote along party lines. So it's a win for Bill Shorten and the right, um, but I think at a significant cost uh, down the track. 
um, and not just in terms of you know damage to the tech sector and potentially political damage too. I mean, if, if Apple withdraws the iPhone as has been mooted um, for, because literally they've, they'll decide that it's not worth selling the, uh, the iPhone in Australia under this law um, because Apple does not want to be compelled by Australian spy agencies to build spyware into the iPhone, um, then I think it will become a, a, yeah. a, an ordinary voter issue very, very quickly. They might be rioting yeah. in the streets. Um, but, but even if that doesn't happen, I think... This has stored up some significant trouble for Labor in the future because it's a marker on the sort of government that a future shortened government will be. And Mm. I think it shows that the shortened government will be quite centrist and in many cases prepared to sacrifice the long-term benefit, you know, the long-term best interests of Australia for short-term political gain. Well, that's not that unusual in a major political party, but I think people have pretty high expectations of a shortened government, and so there's a lot of potential there to disappoint people. Mm. Well, you can't be scared when you're in government, because as we've seen with Malcolm Turnbull, for example, and him being scared of the extreme right of his party, you can't really make bold policy decisions. Well, there's an old saying, oh, hey, my second old saying of the, of the show, dear, oh, dear, cliches abound, but they say that policy is the best politics. And I think um, that's something that our politicians seem to have forgotten in 2018. Um, you know, um, oftentimes, if you actually work hard to come up with a proper policy, voters will see that and they'll reward mm. you for trying to do the right thing. Um, voters do see through, uh, you know, uh, cheap wedges, cheap tactics, um, cheap tricks. And, and I think that that's been a hallmark, particularly of the Morrison government so far, and it's one of the reasons why they're so unpopular. Um, if we are to turn our minds to state politics and look at the success of the Andrews government in 2018, you know, I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that voters really approved of a government that came up with some substantial policies and went through with them, implemented them, um, was prepared to advocate for why it thought those policies were the best policies and got on with them and did them. Exactly, I agree. And Ben, we have uh, MyEFO coming up, the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook. Very exciting. Well, it gets later and later every year. It's Doesn't meant it? to be released six months after the budget, but we're now in December. Uh, anyway, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the budget uh, is at. Um, there'll be a whole bunch of money stacked away in that MyEFO, I'm sure, for political promises. Mm-hmm. So the government's saving up a war chest for the, the coming campaign. Uh, there's also a federal budget in March, so and that will obviously be an election budget. So I expect the government to shower voters with goodies, basically, <laughs> tax cuts of all types. Um, there'll probably be some quite nasty spending cuts buried in the MyEFO. There always is mm. in the fine print, so it might be interesting to watch for that. Yes, and one of the new announcements which will probably be reflected in my EFO is uh, one of the things which has, people have been advocating for for a very long time um, is the fact that there is no uh, listed treatment on Medicare for those suffering from eating disorders. It is a really glaring omission and uh, many people unable to afford to treat 
the, their person, daughter sometimes, or relative with an eating disorder. These are the most fatal mental health issues that exist. Uh, they cause the greatest number of deaths. And we just saw uh, Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison announce that from November next year, which is really a little bit too late in my opinion, but from November next year, uh, there will be treatment services on Medicare for eating disorders uh, to the amount of $110 million over four years. So, I mean, that that's something which has been needed and they should get credit for at least. However, I mean, given that it is an issue which causes death and uh, is really quite severe and urgent, it would be uh, probably better if they didn't wait a whole year to bring it in. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with you there, Amy. Um, just one fact check. I, I don't think eating disorders cause the most deaths. They um, do. Do they? Yep. I, I would have thought suicide would, would be nope. out of uh, eating disorders. Meant that's depression. Suicide isn't a mental health condition. It's the end of it's the mental health. It's yes. the outcome of depression um, or other issues. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, look, um, yes, basically. I mean, I, um, I would want to go and do some work on this before I make any um, comments on, on mental health policy because it's a complex area and it's hard to, it's hard to actually get right. Um, Victoria's going to have a Royal Commission into Mental Health and I think that's a, good, a really good thing because it will help shed, shed some light on this very complex policy issue. But what we know from across the, the policy landscape is that uh, mental health still doesn't get the, the dollars it needs compared to um, other parts of the health system. It's still a very fragmented system. People fall through the cracks all the time. There's still not enough treatment out there for people who need treatment. Um, and, and so, you know, this is while this is welcome, um, I think this is just a drop in the ocean compared to the need that's out there in terms of um, the need for mental health. Um, and, you know, like there's a lot of issues at the moment with the psychologists and Better Access, that program that, that enables people to get um, access to counselling and, and mental health um, professionals. Um, there's still not nearly enough support for people to, to bulk bill that kind of stuff. Um, there's not nearly enough acute beds for mental health patients presenting in emergency wards. You know, the, mm. the, the problem is uh, systemic. And, and Definitely. So, you know, this is, a, this is a good Band-Aid, but it's no more than that, surely. Mm. Well, and it's a state and federal issue, really. It's something where they, people need to combine forces. So hopefully Victoria, as they have led with uh, family violence, can lead on mental health problems. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Mm. Now, Ben, just to cap off on the craziness of Thursday, is the bill that has been passed in the Senate and was due to go down, back down to the House to be voted on, which is the um, medical evacuation bill essentially an amendment to a pre-existing migration bill that was already before the parliament will that come back and do you think scott morrison uh, is likely to risk his government's reputation uh, and basically not win a vote on legislation oh it will definitely come back in the new parliament because uh you know, uh, the, the government can't stop it from from ultimately being presented. But well, can... some people are saying they might call an election so that they don't have to face it. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I think they're locked into a pretty solid timetable of a May election with the March budget. So I don't believe that they, that they would do that. I think they're just going to have to lose a vote. And, and you know... It, 
Governments do lose votes. Uh, Governments lose votes, but not necessarily on legislation. They lose votes on a range of other issues. Many people say that this is essentially a vote of no confidence in a government if it can't, uh, I guess, control the legislative agenda and what gets passed. Yeah, well, it's not. A vote of no confidence is a vote of no confidence. Yes, I'm just saying, Ben, this is what people are talking about and then you can actually explain whether it is or not. Uh, Sure. Um, So, yes, um, the government could lose uh, a vote on legislation and that would not necessarily lead to the fall of the government uh, because the government needs to lose a vote of no confidence, as it's so-called, um, which would indicate to the Governor-General that the, the executive has lost the confidence of the Parliament. Now, just simply losing a vote on a particular piece of legislation would not constitute that. Yes, and as we've seen, the crossbench are quite conservative in terms of their approach to any type of no-confidence vote because they've essentially guaranteed supply and confidence in the government. Yeah, that's right. So people like Cathy McGowan has said that she will not vote for a no-confidence bill against the government. So so, you know, look, I, I, I fully expect there'll be lots of shenanigans in Parliament when it returns in the new year, but I don't think that any of this will lead to the fall of the government. I think ultimately, with the election so close anyway, um, it's most likely that the government will run until May. Um, you know, barring, of course, uh, further unforeseen events, um, somebody dying or, you know, another MP defecting. I mean, you can't rule anything out. But but at this stage, um, the government is locked in, I think, for a May election. Mm. Um, and so let's look at the year in review and have a bit of a, a quick overview. For those who may have not been paying attention, which is understandable. <laughs> yep, it is understandable. It kept everything Highly changes every day. Something yep. new happens or people change their mind. Um, more, it's, I think this year has been marked by a lot of politicking uh, rather than policy, as we've been discussing over the year. Uh, but one of the highlights, p- perhaps, and that is intertwined, really, is the uh, the right the rise of the right in the Liberal Party, the so-called decline of the wet Liberals or moderates, and uh, the fact that they are essentially divided on core areas like religious freedom, climate change and energy policy, uh, even issues around uh, LGBTIQ and discrimination, which we saw recently in the debates around uh, discrimination against students who are... Um, LGBTI. So it is, you know, these kind of issues, these more ideological issues that are dividing and tearing this government apart in a quite a public way and certainly contributed to Turnbull's downfall. Yeah, so if I look back at the the year in politics, 2018, as I saw it, I see sort of four big issues really. Um, And so I'll go through them. And number one is the well, really, the disintegration of the Liberal Party as a unified Australian political party, as a major party in this country. And I think this is, a, this is actually a, a historic event. It's a, it's, we're going to look back on 2018 as an important year in the evolution of Australian politics because of what looks to be the beginning of a, a long-term split, really, in the Liberal Party between, as you said, the right-wingers, the movement conservatives um, and a more moderate faction 
Um, and, and this is something that really threatens to, to split up the modern Liberal Party, uh, formed by Robert Menzies in, in, during World War II in the 1940s. Really, as a broad church, he always said that the Liberal Party should be the home of both conservatives and small-l liberals, and he specifically chose the, the word liberal for the party because he didn't want it to be a conservative party. He wanted it to be a forward-looking party for the mainstream of Australia, for the so-called forgotten people. And I think 2018 has been the year in which we see that the modern Liberal Party can no longer be said to be the party of Menzies in that historic sense. Um, it's not even really the party of Howard anymore. It's now, I think, uh, two parties, uh, really, and, and, uh, and two parties that are at war with each other. So the right-wingers, the Conservatives, um, led by people like Peter Dutton, um, and, and also important internal factional warriors, people like Alex Hawke, who a lot of people wouldn't know about, but it's sort of right-wing factional player in New South Wales. People like Michael Suka here in uh, Victoria, again, a backbencher, but a very significant factional player. Stuart uh, Robert. Stuart Robert. Well, Stu- I wouldn't even call Stuart Robert necessarily a particularly ideological character. He's more like the Liberal Party bagman. Um, and he's, the money man. Yeah, he's emerged as an, a very influential player in the Morrison government. He's very close to Morrison. But but really what this is about is ideology and it's about the future of the Liberal Party. What kind of party will the Liberal Party be in the 2020s? And for the Conservatives, they were prepared to bring down the sitting government of Malcolm Turnbull, really to destroy Turnbull's prime ministership in order to assure themselves that the Liberal Party wouldn't move back towards the centre, that it wouldn't become a moderate kind of centre-right party, despite the fact that that clearly has been the source of the success of of Turnbull as a leader, and and he's the most popular Liberal leader that they had, Um, and indeed the success of Howard, who was, yes, conservative on many social issues, but very moderate on a lot of economic issues, and enabled himself to to play to the centre ground of Australian politics very successfully. Well, the contemporary Liberal Party has not been able to play to the centre ground of of Australian politics and we've seen that uh, across 2018 and the devastating loss in the 2018 Victorian election, the loss of Wentworth in Sydney. Mm. The loss uh, of Hawthorne, which has just been confirmed. That's right, um, in in the state state election, loss of some blue ribbon seats in Melbourne's east, seats that no one would ever have thought would would go to Labor. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is a particularly important historical juncture. And I think um, what what happens to the Liberal Party will, will have a big, big impact on the future of Australian politics. Yes. And it seems they've confused who their base are because they talk about a base, but I don't think they're necessarily talking about the voting base. No, they're not. They're talking about their membership base, so um, the people who actually are Liberal Party members, and there aren't a lot of them. That's the other thing that's worth pointing out. There's probably only 30,000, 40,000 of them across Australia, less than the membership of a big football team. So, um, you know, that's that's a real concern for the Liberal Party. They've lost their kind of mass party um, appeal, mm. as indeed has the Labor Party. There's no, you know, mass political movement in Australia in 2018, but it's 
it's become an existential problem for the Liberal Party because of this disunity. And and I think um, I think come the May election, we'll see those chickens come home to roost. Indeed, Ben. Um, let's quickly touch on China because it's uh, ramping up in terms of the uh, the conflict around it. And also, interestingly, uh, we saw an arrest of uh, from a person who is very prominent in Huawei and uh, this is quite interesting to see their major technology company having issues not just with Australia but also with uh, the UK and America. What is Australia's approach now to China? Yeah, well, if we turn to foreign policy, I'd say the, the, the main trend of 2018 and indeed for the last few years has been the cooling of relations with China, our major trading partner, um, and really the alignment of Australia with the United States in a containment exercise um, in what is now becoming somewhat of a proper Cold War with China. Uh, so China's militarised the South China Sea. It's built bases on the islands in the South China Sea. Um, that's profoundly spooked um, both the US and Australia, the defence establishments. Uh, Australia is aggressively rearming. Um, we're buying joint strike fighters incredibly expensive submarines, new frigates. We're, we're embarking on our most expensive arms build-up in peacetime ever. Um, and, you know, combined with this is a noticeable cooling of economic relations of China. So the United States and China are in the middle of a trade war, and that's really hotting up. Um, it's been tariffs slapped on each other's products left, right and centre. And just recently, last week, we had the arrest in Canada um, who will then be extradited to the United States, um, ultimately on, on laws pertaining to Iran's sanctions of the vice president of Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications phone company, very closely aligned to the Chinese military and seen to be a proxy of the Chinese government. Um, so this is, this is deeply unsettling, obviously, for uh, Chinese business people working in the West, um, but it's also deeply unsettling for the global economy, and you've seen billions of dollars wiped off stock markets since that announcement. Um, there's now a lot of people worried whether there'll be tit-for-tat arrests of Americans and, and Western business people operating in China. Obviously, this is not good for the world economy, which depends on the free mo movement of, of trade in order for the, for the economy to flourish. So a lot of concerns about the future of the world economy in 2019 and indeed of the Australian economy, which is suddenly looking a little bit sick as well. So, mm. yeah, that cooling of relations with China I see as, as kind of one of the main issues of 2018. And uh, we saw the increase on, uh, with tariffs. The US was going to increase tariffs on Chinese uh, goods, but they have deferred that uh, after meeting with each other, the president of both countries meeting together. But this was prior to that arrest. Uh, and so many people now say that the US has the upper hand given that they will have one of China's most prominent business women uh, in their custody. Yeah, I mean, I think it's too early to tell there. Um, Basically, a trade war um, is lost by everyone. So um, the, the, the definition of a trade war is it reduces trade, and that's bad for both economies involved in it. Um, yes, at the moment, um, you could argue that it's hurting China more than it's hurting America, but um, it's clearly hurting both economies. Um, and it's not good for Australia either. So um, no one wins a trade war, and um, the markets are very concerned by it. And what we'll see in 2019, I think that's 
really it's really hard to predict, particularly with the fragility of the Trump administration. Um, you've got Robert Mueller um, closing in on close Trump associates over there. Um, you know, you've, you've got a number of former Trump uh, staffers and associates, his lawyer, his campaign manager, both now in jail. Um, so, you know, what will happen in America in 2019 is very hard to predict and that will have impacts on Australia as well. Yes, it will. Um, ben, we've got two minutes left on the <laughs> clock. Uh, just so our listeners are aware, the Victorian election has now been finished. The counting has been done, essentially, and one of the last seats in the lower house to be confirmed was Ripon, which Louise Daly, a Liberal woman, has won by 15 votes which is the tightest uh, contest we've seen in this state election. Uh, if we had to summarise it in a couple of sentences or more, what would that be, Ben? Well, a devastating win for the Andrews government, you know, an amazing endorsement for a very popular social democratic government, the most progressive government in the country, and a devastating loss for the Liberal Party of Matthew Guy, um, who has, of course, now stepped down as the opposition leader. So, um, you know, as I said, I think this this shows one possibility for the future of Australian politics, that if government is prepared to uh, come up with policies that are addressing big, big issues. You know, Labor had a massive infrastructure policy, and if it's prepared to argue for them strongly and passionately, then it can you can play a big-picture politics and win in Australia, and I think that's very interesting. And that is a positive note to end on, I think, where politics works... It still exists in some form, well, in a workable form. You know, politics always works. What happens with politics is that... Works it, for the people, Ben. Right, works for the people. Well, that's different, I suppose. Yes. Look, you know, I think there's a lot of potentially very interesting things going on in Victoria that the rest of Australia could learn from. And, and I think that is one potential avenue for the shortened government when they take office in May next year. <laughs> you heard it here. We did just announce, called it early, that the Labor government... Well, it is going to be a Labor government, surely, with 10 percentage poll difference. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting run-up to the federal election in May because Labor's starting to get quite nervous as the finishing line approaches. Mm. And, and obviously the, the, the government of Scott Morrison is desperate and they're going to try anything they can. Yes, they are. It's going to be interesting. So stay tuned for federal politics in 2019. Yeah, see you next year, Amy. Thank you for coming in and doing such a fine job this year. Always a pleasure. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Yes, you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. I have with me in the studio the wonderful Graham Davison. He is a professor, the Sir John Monash Distinguished Emeritus Professor at Monash University, and he is Australia's best-known urban historian. He's also a leading social historian, so he has probably one of the best jobs in the world, and he has very, very thoughtfully put together a book called Hugh Stretton Selected Writings, and this book uh, features the writing of Australian public intellectual Hugh Stretton, who passed away in 2015, but 
poet, had a very long and uh, prolific life. He's written some you know, very fascinating pieces, uh, which Graham has obviously done a lot of reading to whittle down to <laughs> the selection we have in front of us. Uh, so I welcome Graham now. Thank you very much for coming in. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Um, and so this book uh, has a, a beautiful cover and it's an artwork um, mm. which, I mean, it certainly is a very reflective, um, you can look at that and think that Hugh is kind of thinking deeply about some kind of subject. Okay. You knew Hugh yes, as well. I, I met him actually first in, in February 1970 when he was one of my PhD examiners, which is not exactly... The most uh, promising beginning for a, for a friendship. <laughs> That's a scary but in fact, prospect. he was so generous. I mean, he actually sat me down and said, you, You've passed and let's have a chat. And afterwards, we went and had a beer. <laughs> and he re- volunteered to write to Melbourne University Press to get my thesis published. So he, and then we had uh, a warm relationship over a long time. So mm-hmm. he, he, it was a wonderful, uh, thoughtful, generous, modest. But above all, extraordinarily incisive thinker. He, he, I think even long before he published, people were rather in awe of Hugh. Um, he, he had a kind of clarity and simplicity away in the way he spoke um, and a generosity in the way he thought about things that was really impressed people. Yes, and he impressed people, uh, well, very early on, as you say. As a university student, he was very, very much uh, loved and admired yeah. by his lecturers and singled out for... Well, he had, he had an extraordinary early career, you know. He, mm. he, he went to university in 1939 and war broke out and he had to break, his studies had to be terminated. He went into the Navy. He had colour blindness, so he couldn't be an officer where he would normally have expected. So he, he served out the war as a, as a naval rating which gave him, as he said, um, some experience of living with working-class people. He'd come from a privileged background. His father was a judge. Yeah. He'd been to Scotch College. But he, he valued that experience during the war. Um, and then when he came, uh, he noticed that towards the end of the war, there was a little faded notice on the ship's notice board saying um, that they were encouraging applications for the Rhodes Scholarship. So even though he'd only had one year of university study, he applied... He turned up and he was interviewed. All the other candidates were officers. They were wearing their military uniform, their decorations. He turned up in civvies. Uh, but his referees were so extraordinarily supportive. And people mm. said, he, this man is a genius. Um, and so he was selected. He went off to Oxford. Um, uh, and the, same, the story repeated itself at Oxford. He, even before he'd taken his final exams, he'd been elected a fellow of his college, uh, Balliol College, uh, and he spent the next five years as a, as a tutor in, in Oxford. Um, quite extraordinary, meteoric rise. Mm. All, of course, without any publications, no, no PhD. Uh, and then at the age of 29... He was um, summoned to come back as Professor of History at Adelaide, again with no publications, no PhD. These days you would think it was scandalous and corrupt. But in those days he had such an an aura Mm. um, and people were so impressed with him intellectually that he was appointed to that position. And he then set about establishing what many people thought at the time was the most vital and democratic history department uh, in the country. So it, it was an amazing early career. Yes. Um, and those who knew him and those who, who've known him since, I think, would all still testify to the extraordinary personal 
um, uh, you know, attitudes and, and persuasiveness that he seemed to exhibit. Mm. Yes, and was it the case that he was the youngest professor? In yes, Australia? he was the youngest professor in Australia when mm. he was elected. There had been earlier professors. Adelaide had a habit, uh, or you might say, of, of selecting infant prodigies. So they appointed uh, Lawrence Bragg, the famous, eventually became a Nobel Prize mm. winning physicist at the age of 23. And Keith Hancock, another yes. famous historian, had been professor at Adelaide, I think at the age of about 26. So there were precedents. But even so, it was a remarkable... Um, uh, attainment, wasn't it, to that have is. been appointed at that age? I, yeah. I, d- I wonder whether it could ever be done in this day and age, really. I doubt it. No. I doubt it. But I think people had confidence in those days that, that they could detect uh, a person who had outstanding intellectual mm. attributes and it wasn't the mere accumulation of publications that made them made them so. So, so And then, of course, um, he, he went on, a uh, brilliant teacher, ran a wonderful department, he survived a painful marriage breakup. He sole-parented his children for a while, happily remarried. Um, but he'd got to the age of about 40, um, everyone still regarding him with, with awe, but he's still not published yeah. anything. <laughs> so, um, you know, early, extraordinary early promise mm. combined with this long, long run-up to the wicket, you might say, yes. before he actually manages to deliver the publications that would eventually make him famous. Yes, well, you, one would imagine there's a little bit of pressure given just how, you know, high that people held him in, how, how much high esteem I, I think as had. the years went by, the weight of expectations probably grew. Mm. Um, and he, he confessed on one occasion, eventually he got leave and went to the ANU in 1966 and he, re- he recalls how he went for a walk up Black Mountain um, uh, climbed Black Mountain got to the top and when he got there he sort of had a little dialogue with himself in which he said something like now Hugh <laughs> you're either you can do it or you can't, can't yeah. <laughs> um, and this was and he went back and he was living in a tiny little house mm. in Hughes and he sat down and the book that had been maturing in his mind for many years began to take shape um, and he wrote it really quite rapidly, a book called The Political Sciences. Um, To take a step back, he'd he'd, um, always been interested and his father was deeply interested in how history could contribute to an understanding of contemporary issues. This had been the issue that had been on his mind all the way through and he, soon after he was elected a fellow of Balliol, he was sent Mm. off to America, he went to Princeton for a year and just to audit courses and to take things in. And he formed a very... um, He came to the conclusion that a lot of what passed off as social science in America, and he was thinking of sociology particularly, he decided was a completely fraudulent enterprise. Mm. Um, And in particular, what he thought was fraudulent about it was the idea that you could somehow do social sciences in a value-free way, that you could separate values from your from the social science enterprise and there was something in his gut that made him know that that was wrong yes uh and he and he eventually this book called the political sciences is a sustained critique of the idea of value-free social science the idea that social science could be modeled upon physics and mathematics and and could emphasize you know quantification and all of that so he he eventually writes this book. Um, it, it had an extraordinary reception. Once again, that word genius, which is often used of him when he was an undergraduate, come, the Times Literary Supplement said this is a work of near, near genius. 
So, um, and I can still remember I was a student at the ANU at the time. The whole of the um, Research School of Social Sciences abandoned its usual program of seminars for two weeks simply to discuss this book, <laughs> which they thought was so... <laughs> So not exactly revolutionary, but Mm. so deeply formative. Um, So that was that, and I'd already read that book when I met him in um, 1970. Very much in awe of him, um, uh, and yet uh, he was so, in some ways, so modest and friendly and and generous in his own demeanour. Yeah, and well, let's talk a bit about uh, his approach to political. Um, science and that mm. pol- the area of study that he was really writing about in um, a political science of society, he, as you say, valued history and the, I guess, historical approach, which is yeah. a very different approach to that in political the political yes. sciences. Yeah. Um, those who may not be aware, maybe we can just draw the distinctions or share what those kind of key differences are. Mm. Well, I I mean, I think one of his beliefs was that history was one of the few kinds of study which could assimilate all kinds of materials and could see problems hold. It didn't, yeah. con- it didn't uh, routinely distinguish between the cultural and the economic and so on. It, it, it attempted to bring them all together and it was open about applying values to them. So I think he thought in that way that history had a, a deep kind of contribution to make it's something by the way he'd learned from his father his father was a remarkable judge who'd carried out the big inquiry into the 1939 bushfires in victoria um, and where he had tried to look at all of the human and natural and other factors that brought about those terrible bushfires um so and he and it's a beautiful report it's mm. it, it, it reads like a novel in places um so from the older Stratton, Hugh had learnt the importance of history in understanding contemporary events and contemporary issues. And at the end of his life, if I can kind of jump forward a little bit, I mean, his last great enterprise uh, was a textbook on economics. He, he, he the uh, most popular textbook, many of your listeners, I suspect, will have encountered Paul Samuelson's book on economics, um, a textbook on economics, and. Uh, while he respected Samuelson in some ways, Stretton thought it was really deeply wrong. And in mm. particular, he wanted to reinsert a, a historical understanding into economics. And so the book is very largely about how, not only about how econo- where economic theory comes from, but it doesn't just drop from heaven. It's itself a product of the reflection of, of, of individuals thinking about the economic circumstances of their own time. But it's also, um, the, it needs to be applied historically so that we understand the in, how the institutions that create economic life came into being as well. So, he, mm. so he's very strong about that idea. Yes. Well, there are some really interesting thoughts that he raises and it. it reminds me of the fact that economics... Was, it used to be part of the humanities. That's right. Which many would forget, given That's it right. is now in a commerce degree, mostly. Well, I, I, it, part of his um, experience was that when he went to Oxford, uh, he was and taught there for five years. He was teaching students in a famous degree called Politics, Philosophy and yep. Economics, PPE. which is the degree, the degree yeah. I took myself. Um, and I was actually taught by his one of his closest friends, another economist called Paul Streeton. And there we, of course, the, the, the whole point of that was that you studied 
history, uh, which was really another way of... They talked about politics, but it was mm. political history, if you like, um, philosophy and economics together. And I think that was something that he deeply valued and believed ought to, ought to be much more common, whereas now, of course, I'm afraid in most universities, we've split them apart. I mean, economics belongs with accounting and marketing, and has very little to do with the rest of the humanities. Yes, and it really highlights the point that he makes, which is that you cannot make such a huge distinction between economics and history. They are intertwined and inform each other. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and one of the quotes that you have in this book, uh, which I thought was really important, was, uh, quote, all those institutions, and he's talking about, you know, economic institutions, political institutions, run on mixtures of motive, desires for money, power, security, respect, love, and other people's welfare, individual gain, mutual service, self-sacrifice, national, racial, religious, corporate, family, and other loyalties. No economic system could possibly run on universal selfishness nor on universal duty universal love or any other single motive exactly yes it and seems I, to and encapsulate that doesn't one it of the, one of, i think if i was asked to pick a particular essay in this book mm. that i think is um really particularly appropriate now it's a book it's an essay called the cult of selfishness mm, and yes. really what it's at the core of that essay is that the we have reduced economic uh, our understanding of economics to the idea that uh, the only motive that we have in life is the acquisition, individual acquisition of money and, and property. Um, and whereas, in fact, most of us live lives where there's a whole range of other motives that, that govern our behaviour. And, and a good economics is one that takes that into account, including people's p- potential for cooperation as well as competition. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's putting the humanity back into economics. Yes. And, you know, it isn't really a science, although many economists would like to think or show that they are somehow objective and and really quite removed from the outcome of their deliberations or valuations. And this is often a way, I mean, this is a way of of isolating ourselves and of insulating ourselves in some ways from the value judgments that are always implied in economic Yes. And you did say that the cult of selfishness is probably one of his most, uh, not necessarily angry, but just he's very passionate in his writing. It is in some some ways quite an angry... Mm. Uh, He was not in personal demeanour an angry man. Yeah. But I think there was a kind of suppressed anger underlying some of his later writing. He He really did feel that... Uh, from the 80s onwards, things began to go off the rails from his perspective. He'd, he'd been... In the 70s, he became very influential, including within the Labor Party, and in the approach up to the election of the Hawke government, he'd been quite closely involved with key people, including Ralph Willis, Barry Jones, Hawke himself, uh, in formulating policy... And when the, uh, the government came to power, um, he found that in a very quick time um, we abandoned um, many of the things that he thought were important in economic life and, and under Keating. Uh, a person who, by the way, he simultaneously ad- admired and, and disliked. Yeah. Um, uh, but under Keating, he felt that the, you know, economic policy had been given over to forces that he really didn't feel were were um, in the best interests of the country. 
Yes, well, basically in the introduction to political essays, which is what I was scanning through yesterday, um, he highlights the Hawke Labor government and their economic policies and really says that they are moving away from their core Labor policies to Liberal policies that both work and don't work and are moving or basically signalling the beginning of this movement to neoliberalism. That's right. He he was was sounding the warnings against that from early on he he you remember if you go back a step you know he'd mm. arrived in england in 1946 the time of the attlee government and he'd seen all of the steps that led to the creation of the modern welfare state you, you know the national health system uh, unemployment insurance all of those things um so he was deeply um committed to the idea that we could redress social and economic inequality by appropriate state action. He had a belief in government. Mm. He, he, but fundamentally, he knew that politicians were not reliable people, that even public servants could be uh, corrupt, but he fundamentally believed in the role of government. And, he, and what troubled him by the 1980s was that there was a, the, the, the push towards so-called small government was, um, you know, in danger of... Uh, not, on, not only leading to increased social inequality, something that, of course, has obviously come to pass, but it was also not even conducive to economic prosperity. Mm. Um, he thought that the that governments... And it's very interesting, you know, I, th- I think now economists and political scientists are coming back to a, rec- a keen recognition of how important government is. Most of the things that we value, including the internet, are things that were produced by, uh, originally by government initiative and we still rely upon them. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, in, in an interview that he did uh, with is it Peter Gibilisco, yeah. he uh, was asked about um, what, how he would classify himself, and you also uh, mentioned this in the book, is uh, that he would identify as a pragmatic social democrat. Yes. What does that mean? What does that qualification mean of pragmatic? And were there social democrats who weren't particularly pragmatic? I think it may. I mean, he used uh, social democrats has a particular resonance. I mean, there's historically we associated also with social democracy in Germany in the early 20th century. Uh, so he was wanting to probably separate himself from that. He, By the way, he all sorts of labels were applied to Stretton. Yes. Including, uh, there's, a, there's a, a deep conservatism in some of Stretton's thinking. I mean, he, he really was very emph- emphatic about the importance of the household, the family. He, he was a strong defender in his time of individual home ownership, for example, against much of the left. He insisted on that. So so the pragmatism came in that I think he was always willing to revise his thinking in new circumstances. And by the 1990s, he rec- began to recognise that for good or ill, that the social democratic project as we'd had it had run out of puff or it had lost its way. And so mm-hmm. a lot of his thinking was applied to how we could might, might be able to revive the best of the social democratic project. And he saw potential in the women's movement, for example. He saw potential in all sorts of aspects of of the horizon that was emerging at that time for rehabilitating that agenda. One of the things that he realised, I think he was slow to, to 
for, to come to terms with it in some ways mm. was that the the uh, the assumptions of Keynesian economics, which had underwritten much of the welfare state, um, the, the, the stagflation that overtook the Western democracies in the 1980s was a profound crisis, and it was something that uh, that you couldn't simply uh, ignore. And so a lot of his attention was trying to rethink the social democratic position, which for him ultimately was a matter of values of fairness, um, values that emphasised so, a degree of social cohesion and so on. Yeah. He wanted to rehabilitate that agenda and make it real for a different time. Yes, and like his, the, there was an importance of class as well in this which you draw out, is the fact yeah. that given he was born into an upper middle class background, uh, you also say that he would made effort after effort to, I guess, cross-class divides yeah. and support uh, people who were of the working class, be around them, as you say, in the Navy, um, having that experience to know all, all of Australia. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me was the fact that you draw or highlight that he said that really class division isn't good for anyone. That's right. And he was very strong on the idea that, you know, a fairer society would be a happier society for the rich as well as the poor. Uh, now, I'm not sure that every rich person would agree. thinks that, <laughs> would, think, would agree with that, but it was something he certainly lived out himself. He, I mean, if you'd met him, uh, you, you might well have decided that he, he seemed very Oxbridge. Mm. You know, he, he, uh, there, was nothing, there was nothing demotic in his own attitude and behaviour, but in the way he lived his life and the priorities he had himself, he, he, he lived modestly, he didn't spend a lot of money, he drove an old car... He did admittedly send his children to private schools. Um, I remember somebody once said, told me that he, you know, they taxed him with this and he said something like, why, why should my children suffer from my principles, which seems a strange idea. <laughs> but, but in other respects, I think he, he really did um, uh, live out his life in a way that uh, reflected that belief that um, and he lived he lived in a neighborhood which he was proud to say included all sorts of people mm. um, uh, if you lived there now you would in North Adelaide um, you would probably have to have a lot more money than he had when he first went there but that was that was his experience mm. yeah and he lived in not only Adelaide but as you said Canberra so he had an yeah. experience of some very particular cities they are quite in contrast to Melbourne and Sydney yeah. in their layout as well as just their general appearance and, and function. Yeah. You highlight in there and um, in this book the differences. He, tr he tries to make distinctions between them, um, particularly between Canberra and Adelaide versus Sydney yeah. and Melbourne. What were some of those observations that he well, was I th making? I think, I think two things. One is scale and one is planning. Um, I mean, he was a, a fervent believer in the value of urban planning. And in, in fact, his second book, and probably his most famous book, mm. Ideas for Australian Cities, is really about urban planning. And he wrote another a really excellent textbook, really, on urban planning called Urban Planning in Rich and Poor Countries. Um, so he, he believed in the value of planning and he saw in both Canberra and in Adelaide traditions of of enlightened planning if you go back to the foundations of adelaide under wakefield uh and the the famous 
Adelaide plan, and which is continues to be um, built upon in later generations. He himself became active in this field. He was the deputy chair of the South Australian Housing Trust, the public housing authority, uh, very close to the public servants who ran that. Um, that uh, and so he 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 believed strongly in traditions of planning, and he saw when he looked at Sydney and Melbourne, mm. he he was more impressed by their absence than the, any evidence of good planning the other was scale i mean he he really raised a question which i think is still a timely one for us which is can can some can our big cities get too big um he, he would argue that you can get most of the virtues that you will find in living in a city with a population of a million or less um you don't have to grow to six million as we seem to be doing now in melbourne in order to achieve um, uh, the best of what we uh, want in urban life. So he was in favour, he was sympathetic to the idea of the Whitlam government to try and create new cities um, that would decentralise Australia's population. Um, and I think that, personally, I think that is still a question that we should be considering, uh, especially when you consider the enormous costs that we're now facing in place like Melbourne of retrofitting our cities with decent yes. public transport, for example. So there, there, there's much to be said and and it's still to be um, I'm still to be persuaded that we can't in an age of the internet actually decentralise employment more than we do at present. Yeah, it's a really excellent point, a very very urgent point, really. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Graham Davison, and we're speaking about uh, this wonderful book, Hugh Stratton Selected Writings. Uh, if we talk a little bit more about urban planning but particularly what you've just referenced there which is density and mm. home ownership yeah. he as you've said was arguing for um less density not more mm, that's right. uh, and many people nowadays would suggest that it's a virtue to have density because you're utilizing mm. the mm. you know space very well but I think what resonates with me is, um, and what you've been talking about uh, in other interviews, is the t the security that home ownership provides, and also the space, the physical yeah. space inside and outside, that provides physical security, but also mental respite or or security. Yes, yes. I, mean, I, I think in some ways our perception of the home ownership thing has been distorted by the fact that what's taken over is the speculative value of housing yeah so people now register their sense of worth in housing regrettably not a about the value that has to them in mm. the way they can live their lives but in what they can trade up to in in terms of acquisition of, of more wealth and i think that's had a you know a, a dreadful effect i don't know it'd be interesting if hugh was still here today to ask him his how he feels about homeownership. I think at the time when he first began to write, we had about 70% of home of uh, householders owned or were buying their own home. Mm -hmm. It's now slipped, hasn't it? And yes. among the, among younger people, it's slipped even further. So if you're a, if you're a social de democrat and you're interested in fairness, uh, I think he, what he would now be emphasising more was something that he did emphasise at his time, but he would probably now give more attention to, which was the importance of providing suitable rental housing for people who simply can't afford um, to own their own home anymore. Mm. Well, it's a real problem for many 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 people um and the apartments that are now built are 
tiny yes, that's right. <laughs> like and many of them don't have natural light or yeah. very limited natural light and that does have a significant impact on well-being especially, and, and especially he would have said for families yes. you know if you're t- trying to rear children in those sorts of conditions and we've now hear reports don't we that people who are um, bringing up children in high-rise apartments so mm. you know there, there's all sorts of difficulties in that so so he he, he was not against dense housing for those yes. who wanted it he very happily would would uh, support that but what he didn't want was to to be imposed upon mm. he people who didn't want it um and uh and i think that's still uh, a key question he was also very questioning i mean a, a lot of the arguments in favor of densification get going uh, on the basis that we can achieve um, uh, economies of space, we can uh, create more viable public transport and so on. He questioned a lot of the inferred causal relationships between those things. And he would point out, for example, that um, at at the moment a large proportion of the space that we have in our cities is taken up not by housing but by roads, by parking, by a whole range of other functions mm. so in order to get a significant uh, increase in uh, density you've got to crush people into unacceptably constrained um, conditions yes well it, it certainly is quite revealing nowadays in victoria when you see melbourne and also the rise of geelong as an example just yes. how it is growing and becoming less affordable yes even there which That's is right. disturbing because um, having come from there i've seen it it change a huge amount and as you say it's been taken up by other things like you know shopping malls and yes. you know and and the I guess the growth on the outer skirts of Geelong that are moving towards Torquay and are on like agricultural land and land that would never have been used for housing is also quite concerning. And a lot of it, of course, has been uh, um, quite unregulated Um, and we've got relatively... I mean, if you think back in terms of the history of Melbourne, when most of our suburbs grew, we had already constructed a, a pretty good public transport system. For 50 years, we've neglected the growth of public transport. We're now trying to provide it. If we were to build new suburbs and to put in the needed infrastructure from the beginning, I personally don't see any reason why we shouldn't be building new suburbs Mm. on the periphery, as long as we build them in the right way. Yes. Well, you talk about the fact that he... um he was pro-suburbs. He yes. didn't think they were this kind of place where the intellectual soul goes to die, which many people would uh. think of and deride suburbs as being these kind of concrete jungles with houses and a backyard or a front yard. What do you think Hugh would think about housing estates in the, in the contemporary way that they've been designed and placed or Put in, in well, kind I, think, of I mean, areas. I think you would think some of them are appalling. I mean, what, yeah. if we think about what's happened in recent years, we you focus on the rise of a few high-rise apartments in the centre, but what's much more the case is, of course, that we've been bu- building houses that are bigger and bigger. I mean, you're not the, the the new project house not only has to have four bedrooms, but of course it has to have four bathrooms. It has to have uh, not only a, a, a living room, but it has to have a parents' retreat. It has to have a, a games room or playroom and so on. So we're making bigger and bigger houses, which mm. are, of course, more and more energy 
um, you know, inefficient. Um, so uh, there's been too little focus, I think, on that. Meanwhile, I think uh, it, we could well be building um, new suburbs in a different way that would enable us to provide most of what people actually need um, and and connect them much more efficiently to the rest of the city. And I think that's probably what he would have been looking for now, not, mm. not necessarily... Um, uh, pushing people into high-rise apartments. Yes. And, well, one of the the features is that the greater the house size, it seems um, the diminishing size of green space or gardens and places where, for example, children might play. Yes. I mean, what what I think he was... When he advocated um, home ownership, I think the backyard, he would have... He actually quoted research on backyards i'm not mm. sure that if you carried out that research now you would get the same result he he was thinking of the age when uh, backyard cricket was yeah. the norm now we have to live in an age where i suspect um nintendo is the is the norm you know um and so the games room is taken over from the from the backyard mm. uh he thought of you know backyards where people did motor car maintenance where they uh, sunbaked they did also now for good or ill that some of that seems to have gone, doesn't it? I yes. Mean, and, and whether it's because people don't have the backyards uh, and therefore can't do it or whether, whether they're actually choosing a different kind of space, I think mm. is an interesting question. Yes, it's hard to know what came first. Is it yes. the restriction yeah. or you know, we're responding to restrictions? or yeah, but, I think, but I think at the core of his idea was the mm. idea that we should be, have some degree of control over the spaces in which we live. So um, it, it's changed a little, but even now renters have difficulty, don't they? For example, you know, some landlords won't let, let you put your pictures up. They no. won't allow you to, to modify the space in the way you would want to do. So um, Yeah, so our, sometimes a guest in someone else's home. That's right. So home. our sense of, of well-being is mm. very much tied up with that sense of control over the intimate spaces in which we live. Yes. I think that's such an important point that is just barely touched on now. Yes. That's right. It's, yeah, obviously why this book is important, and I'm really glad you've put together such a great selection. I wanted to raise something that you have uh, raised, which is the, the word selection and the process of selecting, yes. um, which also goes back to his uh, approach, scholarly approach to topics and yes. uh, the inherent bias or values that are at play whenever an individual is putting something together yes. it's reflecting a person's values and the need for you to be upfront with that's what right. your values are that's right that is also something which seems to be lacking is well, that well i think i think I mean, any, any any anthology is a selection mm. i mean selection was one of uh, his favorite words um, he was interested in what it is that we select when we, when we are a historian or a social scientist, uh, what governs our selection of what's relevant. Um, and so I was mindful of that when I came to selecting from his own work. He was a prolific writer. Yeah. Um, there's an 800-page textbook on economics. <laughs> uh, the Political yeah. Sciences, which I think you've looked at, is a, yes. is a bumper. You know, it's a, what, a four or 500-page yes. book. Mm. Um, I... I had the advantage that I'd previously written about him and I'd been and worked on his papers at the National Library and I was aware that very often um, in occasional talks and lectures or letters to other people he often wrote 
about what he was th- he expressed what he was thinking in a much more concise and often uh, livelier way than he did in the big books. Mm. So the so when I came to selecting uh, for this book, I decided to include a lot of those previously unpublished piece talks and things that he gave of that kind so there's a lot what nice one he gave his abc guest of honor talk about uh, why he was uh against very free trade and very big government a very small government yeah you know? um, or there's another very nice one that he gave to donald horn's ideas somewhat about the value the use of history it's only mm. less than two thousand words but in my mind it's an absolutely a real gem about what it is the it's distinctive that the that that history can contribute to our understanding of the world. Um, so he he could be, and he was a, 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 an absolutely um, captivating speaker. I heard him speak on a number of occasions. So some of those shorter pieces capture him uh, in an informal way that I think is really very attractive. Mm. Um, and, and I have included I have included selections from most of his things. I also, at one point in an interview, he was asked, you know, you, do you plan to write an autobiography? And he said, oh, no, I couldn't buy, write an autobiography. People would think I was too conceited. Uh, but in fact, in short bursts in various places, he did write about his life, um, wrote about his childhood, wrote about his parents and his values. Somebody, I think it might have been Peter Gibalesco or one of the other interviewers, mm. asked him about his core beliefs, including his religious beliefs. And he, So I gathered together a number of these short pieces and I think together they make quite a compelling a kind of self-portrait in a way of, of who he thought he was, where he'd come from, what his values were and so on. Yes. Mm. Well, I did try and look for audio so I could hear his voice, but it wasn't immediately available. No, I'm not sure whether it is. There, no, the, it's I think not. there might well he there would be audio it's at the of, the inter- of the interviews he did at the National Library. Yeah. They're, they're in audio as well as in transcript, yeah. so you could hear him there. But not online, unfortunately. No, yeah. but he, had, he spoke in a very kind of precise, clipped uh, voice. Um, I wouldn't say fastidious is, is um, perhaps exaggerating, but he was very careful about how he spoke he he uh, he, for example when he was i think at the beginning of one of his books he says never use a long word where a short word would do never write a long sentence where a short one will do um always if you mean right or wrong say right or wrong don't obfuscate so he, he was very direct and open in that way and that's quite unusual Yes, yes. <laughs> Certainly, um, I appreciate that type of writing in particularly academic contexts. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one of the quotes that is really interesting, and I guess I'd like to know how you think this reflects on his approach or character, is um, that he said, new ways of doing things are neither necessarily better nor necessarily worse than old ways. Yes. I, well, I, first of all, I agree with mm. that very much i think i mean he was against lazy thinking of any kind so uh, uh, he was suspicious of fads and trends and fashions and simply because an idea happened to be the latest thing out mm. or or it appeared to have momentum at a particular time he would be he would be more inclined then to say uh, stop reflect Think about whether it's really appropriate or not. So, so he again and again, and I suppose that that remark was made particularly against the background at a time when it seemed as though um, neoliberalism had uh, had momentum, 
that it was the way of the future, that all of the things that he had been attached to himself in the past were relegated and regarded as unimportant. Mm. Um, he, in, that, in that sense, you, I suppose it's quite a conservative instinct in a way, isn't it? It's to say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Take a moment to think about whether or not we're not abandoning something that, we, that is truly valuable mm. when we take that view. Well, I would think that's just a rational approach Exactly. To yeah, anything yeah, rather yeah. than conservative, yes. which is also revealing of where we're at at the moment. Um, one of the, the elements that is interesting as well is the fact that when he's talking about new ways of doing things, um, you quote parts from the political sciences book, particularly where he's saying there are many people who come up with these schemes or classes or ways of theorising Yes areas of knowledge or thought and that um, the last point in this which he writes which I think is quite true is that he says when your scheme has discovered no new information and has finished reclassifying the old information then let it pattern eclectic explanations wherever you can protect a market for them. Yes. It seems to be that that's just our modern practice now almost well, probably i mean eclectic see eclectic is an interesting word that mm. he often would be approving of eclectic things he was to take the other view he was um he was suspicious of total systems of any kind yes including by the way i mean one of the re- reasons he was not a marxist um was was that he objected to i think maybe not to everything about marx by any means but particularly to doctrinaire mm. or systematic kind of marxism so he was repelled by that um, so he was content in a way to patch things together to take a bit of that uh, and a bit of this um, mm. according to his own values um, and he, he he was not troubled by the thought um, that he might be regarded by people who were um more doctrinaire than himself as being unsystematic or inconsistent yes it was yeah. his pragmatism that's right yes exactly. that's right yeah and and that kind of um i think he says scientism yes. of political science which is that re- classifying and reclassifying and having and, yeah, a methodology and, and, and it's really the idea that the social sciences can be modeled upon physics mm. um you know remember back to the 1950s uh, 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 physics was the was the most prestigious of the science, sciences, wasn't it? In the, yes. in the nuclear age, physics had the prestige that I probably now in the natural sciences, biology would be ha- have much since the discovery of DNA and all of that would have much more prestige. But at mm-hmm. his time, physics he thought was had undue prestige and undue influence upon the way in which social scientists went about their work. Mm. Um, I just want to close out this discussion on the way we have debates because you have spoken about the fact that he believed that one had to have public intellectual debates around policy in order to to get somewhere. He was talking in a different time that had a different kind of mode of debate. What do you think he might um, consider this day and age of intellectual debate to be and how would he characterise it? And I think he'd be deeply troubled mm. by the age of, you know, Twitter and... Uh, I mean, he, his conception of... and it may, You may say this was a, uh, a very old-fashioned one, but his conception was one of a, of a lively, active public sphere in which ideas were debated openly uh, and rationally and which uh, ultimately policy was determined by the contest of ideas Mm. rather than by uh, shock jocks or 
special interests or any of the other things that now loom large. So he, he and he one of the la- the last essay I include in the book is one called How Not to Argue, um, and it was really a, a, a defence of that way of thinking, which included, by the way. The feeling on his part that you should be respectful of your opponent. So yes. he he he, even though the neoliberals, uh, many of them, he was deeply opposed to them, their values and principles. In most part, he was prepared to give them um, the uh, the respect that was due to somebody who w- was arguing uh, with uh, you know the good of the of the public at heart. So. Uh, in that respect, I think he was a model in some ways mm. for us still. Well, this is a, a great book for anyone who is considering or thinking about these issues, and I really appreciate the fact that you've come in to talk about it today mm. and congratulate you on putting together this book, which must have been a challenge given just how... Well, it was a challenge and a pleasure. I enjoyed it. It was an opportunity for me to go back and reread all of his work and to to figure out where I stood too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Graham, for coming in. And uh, I hope people can pick up a copy and read it. Um, It's out through Latrobe Publishing, which is an imprint of Black Ink. Yes. Pleasure, Amy. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And, well, as I said, it is in the last hour of the uh, program for 2018. And, of course, let's recap the year or finish the year on uh, some controversy. Certainly a lot of um, political upheaval is happening in the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and uh, and the EU, the European Union, and to to talk about this is a very, very, a very highly regarded, well informed uh, person. Professor Philomena Murray is the Jean Monnet Chair at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne, and Philomena joins me on the phone uh, very graciously to give us her views and her time. And uh, I welcome Philomena now. Hello there. Hello, Amy. Good to be with you. It's really wonderful to have you on the show. I've uh, been meaning to speak with you about this topic for a long time. And Mm -hmm. um, it is, I guess, something which can be quite complex and a little bit overwhelming for the average person who may not be, um, I guess, politically obsessed like some of us (laughs) are. And I'm sure you can relate given that it is your job and and you do a a fantastic job of talking about the European Union and and teaching people at the University of Melbourne. Uh, But Philomena, I know that you were over in Brussels very recently. Uh, Why were you over in Brussels? Look, I was there for a number of reasons. I'm uh, working on a project on Australia's relationship with the European Union. And, of course, increasingly, we're also looking at Australia's future relationship with the UK, um, assuming that Brexit, that is, the UK exiting the European Union as soon as Brexit um, takes place. So I was actually doing some interviews and meetings with EU officials um, over there. And I was also meeting with, uh, with colleagues on some research grants on um, relations between the European Union and Asia in security and trade, and thirdly on comparing the European Union's p- 
refugee policy with Australia's one and I'm a part of a team of six universities including three here in Australia um, looking at some of these issues. What so it was a busy week. Yeah, it must have been. <laughs> it's a fascinating um, range of topics you're working mm-hmm. on there. Uh, I'm sure it must keep you busy. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we'll be talking about Brexit. And yeah. uh, just to give some background to those who um, may not know the origins of the European Union and why the UK mm-hmm. was part of it, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and also, I guess, their special relationship there because they certainly have some exceptions that other countries have not had such Mm. as their currency um so where did the eu come from and what was its original purpose well amy really we need to remember that most of the countries of europe have in common as as you know the fact that they uh, were at war with each other so we had the first world war and the second world war after the second world war um, many people said let's try and do something differently so the french put forward a proposal to have a peace agreement with with germany and the other countries of what became known as the european union so even though the eu was very well known as a trading entity and as a major economic bloc of over half a billion people, it started off just as much as a peace project to try and make sure that the Germans and the French never, ever were at war again. Now, the UK didn't join at the time. They created something called the European Free Trade Association. But what a lot of people don't realise is that actually Winston Churchill, then Prime Minister of the um, UK, said, I really do support this, but really our Commonwealth and our special relationship with the US are more important. So it's actually was supportive of it and they finally joined um, along with Denmark and Ireland in 1973. So it's a long history of being embedded in the European Union that we see the UK attempting to extricate itself from now. Yes and so uh, there's a very very strong relationship particularly Mm -hmm. because legislatively uh, the European Union is, um, I guess, comes up with legislation mm-hmm, through mm-hmm. a negotiations process, doesn't it? That's right. And what's really interesting is that legislative process, that decision-making process, really involves all 28 countries because the UK is still a member. So all 28 countries make those decisions. It's not made by some anonymous person in Brussels. There is a bureaucracy in Brussels called the Commission, but all of the decisions are made by the states called member states, including the UK. And the UK has been a terrific negotiator within that, particularly on trade issues, on climate change issues, on renewable energy, they have been really at the forefront of many of these um, decisions. So even though the public narrative was of uh, being an awkward state, an awkward partner, not really part of many aspects of the European Union and its values, its negotiators, its bureaucrats, its diplomats, in fact, were terrific contributors to the future of European Union policy from the time they, they joined in 1973. So all of these decisions, you're quite right, have been made jointly, even even though, as you also pointed out, the UK did decide to opt out of um, several of these decisions. But most of them they stayed in with. Yes, and now it's just just how obvious it is that uh, they are so intertwined and reliant upon um, the EU, given that mm. their legislation is one and the same. Um, 
I and also the obviously the tr- close trading relationships um, that that have been enabled through uh, the EU process, as well as the movement of people um, right. and the mm-hmm. ability for EU citizens to work and live in different countries within mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. EU, seems to be such an important feature. That's um, right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm. In terms of the fact that we had this referendum, David Cameron, the Tory former Prime Minister, uh, put it forward. He didn't necessarily need to have a referendum on Brexit. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just to, I guess, put it in a bit of a nutshell, uh, we didn't see a very high voter turnout in certain demographics, which means That's that right. some people now dispute whether it's really reflective and could really be called the people's choice. That's right. And in fact, the people's choice is the name of the um, group that are, who are pushing very strongly for what they call a people's choice, that is for a second referendum. Look, um, over 30 million people did um, vote in the Brexit referendum. Um, it, the turnout was 71%, but many people didn't realise how important this was. Many were voting about really the, the, the current government. Many people felt dissatisfied, but particularly there was a narrative of loss that we, we lose a lot, we lose money when we stay in the European Union. If we take the money back, we'll have a better health system. That's very appealing. Most people want a better health system. So the NHS, the National Health System, was, was people were told that there would be a massive amount of funding going to them. So there was that sense of appeal. But also, unlike referenda in Australia, um, where we would need a double majority, in other words, we'd have to have a majority of the states um, in favour of um, a referendum result, We actually found that even though England voted by about 54, almost 54% to leave, Wales something similar, Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain. So there was a huge um, sense of dissatisfaction in some parts of uh, British society. And, um, of course, many young people who've never voted before, and they didn't because we were 16, 17 then, would like to now have a chance to have, as you said, this um, people's voice, this people's referendum. Yes, well, I've seen on Twitter the the heated discussions and debates that have been going on about this idea of a second referendum, which has been bubbling away for a long time, but it's only recently been Mm -hmm. seen as a, I guess, even a possible option, a realistic option. Um, Certainly, Theresa May has said it's not a realistic option, but I I really would like to also highlight and ask your thoughts on the ruling that's just been handed down I think it's by the ECJ, which That's is... right. Yeah, and, and it was about the uh, Article 50 process with which um, the, uh, the Britain or Great Britain, the UK, triggered Article 50 to start the yes. process of leaving mm-hmm. the Euro- European mm-hmm. Union. What was yep. this uh, judgment or decision that we've uh, just received? Yes, it's really interesting that people on Twitter are becoming experts on the European Court of Justice around the time that the um, UK is about to leave. Look, the EU has its own legal system, and as you've pointed out, much of the legislation that's passed is actually now British legislation, Irish legislation, Lithuanian, Greek, etc. It's domestic legislation. So... um, The EU is a legal body and it's got a treaty, a number of treaties, and basically Article 50 is the one that nobody really paid much attention to until a little over two years ago when that article was activated by Theresa May. And that article says that a member state, uh, that is a state of the European Union, may actually leave. Now, 
that article was triggered a few months after the referendum um, uh, on the 29th of March last year. So on the 29th of March next year, we are going to see the UK leave. Or will we? And Mm. that is the question. So six Scottish parliamentarians took a case which went all the way to the European Court of Justice, which gave a preliminary ruling from uh, one of its lawyers, an advocate general, last week. And this was confirmed by the full bench, all of the Court of Justice of the European Union, saying this is not necessary for the other 27 countries to agree should the UK leave. In other words, Article 50 can be rescinded. Article 50 does not have to be followed through. The UK does not have to leave. Um, it doesn't leave, need the approval of the other 27 countries in order to leave. It can just, or in order to stay, I beg your pardon, um, it can actually just stay. Now, this is a mammoth um, success or, you know, achievement for many people who want the UK to remain in the European Union, and that mm-hmm. includes, of course, the majority of both the parliamentarians and the population of Scotland. Um, so we really have got um, a, a huge debate coming up now. Um, so now that the Brexit, Brexit debate in Parliament has been deferred by um, Theresa May, we're now in a situation where the Parliament is not making a decision on it because it, it would have been roundly defeated. But people are saying, well, we don't have a vote from our people's representatives in the Parliament. Mm. We now absolutely have to have that people's vote. Yes, well, a lot of people before this ruling thought the horse had bolted and, you know, mm. they'd started mm-hmm. this process mm-hmm. that was just too far ahead to be stopped. And certainly yeah. the way that Theresa May discusses it is that, well, Brexit means Brexit. I'm going to deliver on mm. what you voted for. And she's mm-hmm. very doggedly followed this mm. process, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, is to her detriment as leader. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why has she been so determined to deliver Brexit, even when the deal that she's ended up with or negotiated has been criticised and essentially rejected by not only those who wanted to remain, but even those who wanted to leave. That's right, yeah. Um, Look, she has been extremely dogged, and she certainly cannot be um, criticised for not being persistent enough. She is extremely persistent, but I mean, I think that phrase, Brexit means Brexit, means absolutely nothing, Mm. because what we're actually seeing is Brexit means so many different things to different people. So you're quite right. So putting aside the Remain uh, people for the moment, um, both within the Conservative Party and indeed in the Labour Party, and the Liberal Democrats in in the Parliament, and of course those in the you know the majority of Scottish parliamentarians. What we've got is different views on what this Brexit agreement or withdrawal agreement actually is. Now this. I think it's actually a good agreement in terms of what it gives to the UK. Um, It is not a hard Brexit. It actually uh, gives them quite a bit of market access um, in terms of a form of custom union. But where there's a lot of people disagreeing is the fact of of the mutual access. So it's not just British goods into the rest of the European market, but vice versa. A second issue is that these rules would have to be aligned with European Union rules on a number of other aspects of the European single market. 
market. And this is something that a lot of people are worried about. Um, and uh, this is particularly the case when it comes to um, Northern Ireland because of the peace agreement. So this peace agreement um, really is not just about no more tensions, no more violence, but it's also about an aligning of um, the economies of uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and indeed the UK, were it to stay in. So this is really something that a lot of um, parliamentarians are very, very, very uh, con- condemnatory of, many of them, of course, not understanding anything about um, the challenges that Northern Ireland would face um, should there be a hard Brexit, for example. Yes, well, I mean, many in Australia wouldn't quite understand the history of uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland and how that Mm -hmm. affects us right now in our Brexit um, negotiations. Yes, yes, that's right. What do you think, um, if you had to, I guess, crystallise it or distill it down into something um, possibly with less nuance, um, Mm -hmm. what is it that is the sticking point in terms of this border um, issue for Northern Ireland? Because I do know that there are many points of transition it across the border and that's mm-hmm. been raised as a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. Look, you're absolutely right. Um, and it, it, most of us don't need to understand the intricacies. I suppose the most important thing is that, as you said, there's many points of um, crossing between the Republic and Northern Ireland, 208 to be precise. Um, So that's a lot of crossings, a lot of cross-border areas that would need to be policed by customs, for instance, quite apart from the issues of trying to avoid violence. So really what you've got is people whose farm is actually part of the Republic and part of Northern Ireland. Um, There is a common uh, tourism board, for instance. There's a north-south dialogue uh, on many aspects of economic cooperation and also a Northern Ireland-UK dialogue all part of the peace agreement from 20 years ago. So really it's about peace, but it's also about the fact that so much of uh, the trade between the Republic and Northern Ireland is just basically on the basis of walking across or driving across um, these borders. Mm. Now, that's fine as long as the UK stays in. Given that Northern Ireland is part of the UK, this is where you've got the sticking point. And one way of dealing with these challenges was to have what's called the backstop, which is a type of insurance um, to make sure that there still would be alignment with with, um, uh, the European Union's uh, provisions on uh, free movement of goods, for instance. And this is where you have the sticking point. Scotland, for instance, says, well, hold on, this gives an unfair advantage to Northern Ireland, but not to us in Scotland. So there are many challenges there beyond the one of this whole peace project, because the EU is not just a peace project, but so too the Good Friday Agreement or the peace agreement is also a peace project. Yes, and uh, raising the issue of borders, uh, Scotland had a referendum on independence uh, mm. a while ago, but it mm-hmm. has flagged through Nicola Sturgeon uh, that they mm-hmm. are considering another referendum. That's right. Given yeah. that, as you said, Scotland voted to remain in a very clear way, uh, mm-hmm. what do you think Scotland's current position is? Because I, I believe that they're quite... Uh, well, unhappy with the way that uh, Theresa May has negotiated this and uh, the fact that they're not really mentioned in the 585-page document that is the uh, beginnings of the negotiation agreement. 
that's right. You're, you're absolutely right. Scotland voted by 62% to remain um, in the European Union. Scotland receives a considerable amount of funding, as does Northern Ireland, um, from the European Union, which is matched by the UK government. Um, and so what we've got is um, a situation where Scotland has always uh, been able to do well out of membership. It has always valued membership. And Nicola Sturgeon, the Premier, as you've pointed out, is extremely concerned about the fact that she wasn't consulted on the withdrawal agreement um, in advance, that it is not dealt with in the withdrawal agreement of 585 pages, um, that it is not dealt with in a political way either. So she is, she really is regarding this very much as an agreement which um, focuses on other parts of the UK. The special aspects of Northern Ireland, even though these are hugely controversial for many, um, that backstop assurance, but also a concern that this really is about to, really she, to, about England and to a certain extent Wales. So we really are looking at quite a disunited United Kingdom um, at the moment. So one option is for Scotland to apply to join the European Union as Scotland once the UK leaves and that is something that she and her colleagues have been talking about. Well it certainly raises really old wounds that have existed Mm. between Scotland and England for centuries Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know it is quite shocking really to think that Theresa May has not been inclusive uh, in terms of the the different elements of the UK in terms of this agreement. Mm -hmm. How have you uh, viewed her political approach to these negotiations? Because she has received quite a lot of criticism in terms of, I guess, such a a unilateral approach and um, Mm -hmm. and that she was, you know, trying to get the best deal she thought she could get in a Mm -hmm. very compromised circumstance where the UK doesn't really have much of an upper hand. Look, um, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, Theresa May wasn't inclusive even within her own party, and I think that's been one of the problems, um, that her party hasn't come with her. Now, as to whether they would anyhow, um, that is really a moot point, because we know that there are deep divisions within the party, considerable criticism of her. There's a collection of letters um, uh, uh, requesting her resignation. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of that group, which is called the European Research Group for for reasons that escape most people, um, you know, that he actually is waiting to get enough uh, numbers really to go to the relevant committee to call for her resignation and to have a leadership spill. So she's got that on the one hand. She's got members who actually, in her party, want to stay in the European Union. And there are those um, who are willing to take some form of Brexit, but a lot of them are nevertheless um, not keen on the sort of uh, agreement she's she's had. So she's had 21 ministerial or under secretary um, resignations um, since she's become prime minister. I mean, that's quite shocking, really. And then, of course, she hasn't negotiated with the Labour Party um, or with the Liberal Democrats or indeed with the Democratic Unionist Party, which um, uh, was the only party to oppose the peace agreement and which is the party that is providing supply uh, for her. So it's almost like a de facto coalition in some ways. So really, there's a challenge there. Um, She also has lost several Brexit secretaries along the way. Um, So she's had really a shrinking group of talent um, to be able to call on to support her in her negotiations. Having said that, she's got fantastic diplomats. You know, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office is very good. She's got some good people preparing good work for her. But the idea of sitting down with all of the main political parties on a regular basis to work out what's best for Britain hasn't yet clarified, hasn't yet been evident in her approach. 
Well, it seems like that would be the only way you could get any agreement, given the current level of mm. disagreement. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. I'm interested in Labor's approach to this Mm. under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership because many Mm -hmm. have also been critical of Labor for not even entertaining the idea of a second vote, a referendum, Mm. and we've now seen some Labor MPs indicate they would be open to the idea. Uh, Theresa May has quashed the idea of um, reversing Article 50 overnight, saying that that Mm. ECJ judgment doesn't affect her her That's approach. Right. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. what do you think um, Labor has been doing, or be, how have they been arguing um, in terms of Brexit? Because they are essentially yeah. supporting Brexit, aren't they? Well, the Labour Party is as divided as the Conservative Party is. Um, The Labour Party actually had in its statutes, in its constitution until 1983, an article stating that they would leave the European Union. So they have been quite Eurosceptic or anti-EU as well, partly seeing it as a very capitalist um, form of bloc. Now, this has been something that we've seen, in fact, with the first referendum, because there was a referendum on membership of the European Union in 1975, and the British people voted to stay two years after after they had just joined. Now, the the, the Tory the Labour Party is divided. He's, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has never said the European Union is useful or is beneficial for the UK. That has fallen to people like Keir Starmer, who is the opposition Brexit spokesperson um, within the Labour Party. And many people say that they would actually prefer if he was in charge of Brexit completely. But Ger- Corbyn himself has always been very reticent, always been very critical of the European Union, not unlike many of the, uh, in the Tory party. What's really interesting is, just in the last um, oh, less than 24 hours, all the main leaders of socialist, social democratic and labour parties in Europe, and that includes non-EU ones as well, have written an open letter to Jeremy Corbyn, published in The Guardian uh, and elsewhere, saying we actually want you to know that the EU is not perfect, but we think that the UK should stay in, and that as a socialist or social democrat, we call on you to actually agree with the idea of remaining, because there are so many benefits, for instance, in social policy, workers' rights, etc. So this is really interesting that he's now had an open call to actually recognise some aspects of the um, European Union that he has never in fact acknowledged may be useful um, for workers, for instance. So this is going to be really interesting, but he himself has pulled back. All he said is that we should have had the vote um, in Parliament, but he's pulling back from actually having a vote of no confidence in the government. Yeah, that is. It is very interesting. It's quite conflicting and hard to yeah. to <laughs> understand. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. One of the contested areas is uh, I've said I looked at both of the parties' videos that they're posting up to either be for or against certain elements of the agreement, and one mm-hmm. of them seems to be issues of workers' rights, which is obviously mm-hmm. a Labor Party traditional stronghold or area Absolutely. of strength. Yes, yes. What what are your thoughts in terms of um, what this uh, proposed agreement delivers or doesn't deliver for uh, UK workers and will they be worse off if this uh, agreement as it stands was to be proceeded with? 
Well, um, if Brexit takes place and if a Conservative government remains in power or is re-elected, um, well, then it means that um, there will be some dismantling of European Union legislation. Um, in fact, there's probably 22,000 pages of EU legislation that needs to be negotiated and 780 or so international agreements on trade and aid and other issues. So there's going to be a huge amount of work, but many people are concerned that the idea of a type of Singapore option, of Singapore on the Thames, as they're saying, um, might be a possibility where you would have um, people coming in to um, the UK to work without workers' rights, for instance, or with, without many workers' rights. Um, there would be concerns about the uh, lack of a minimum, minimum, minimum wages. Um, it is the European Union that has legislated for um, the 28 countries to have paid maternity leave, for instance. Um, rights in the workplace regarding anything from noise control, for instance, to being able to take breaks. All of this really is covered by a number of workers' directives and similar forms of legislation and social policy. So what we'll see is that there's an expectation that if there is a Conservative government, some of these could be dismantled in order to have what's often referred to as greater um, profitability or even productivity. So I would say that's going to be something that we really need to watch very carefully if Brexit goes through. Yes. Um, now, Philomena, in terms of where we're currently at, you mentioned there that Theresa May has def- put off the vote that was meant to occur mm-hmm. in the House of Commons mm. later today, our time, and uh, Tuesday morning, their time. Mm-hmm. This, um, I guess, is not surprising if someone's being pragmatic about their leadership. However, mm-hmm. it seems like a very short-term uh, solution, and it it's kind of unclear as to where to from here. Do, has Theresa May signalled where she intends to go or what she intends to do, given that the EU has suggested there would be no real change to the agreement that's been negotiated? Yes. Look, the EU is having a meeting in a few days' time of all of their um, heads of state and government, and at that meeting, they are actually going to be discussing the possibility of no Brexit taking place. Mm. So this is really important. They said that we are now stepping up our preparations for a no deal, for a no, no deal Brexit. So this is really quite concerning. Theresa May has sent um, her main negotiator over to Brussels to see if there's any possibility of any changes. So she can then present to the Parliament. The latest indications are that that would be in January. They're leaving on the 29th of March supposedly. So this is really, time is really, really um, moving on here. And um, really, I can't see any of the 585 pages um, being renegotiated. But there is possibly the idea, and this has been discussed in Brussels over the last week or two, that maybe some changes could be made to the political declaration, which is about 27 pages long. And that is a declaration of work and need, the importance of working together as partners. Um, it's really a declaration on the framework for the future relationship between the EU and the UK. Mm. So it starts off, with a lo- it talks about human rights, commitment to multilateralism, um, commitment to creating a free trade area type of customs union, zero tariffs as much as possible, these sort of issues. Now, there could be some playing around a little bit with this political declaration, but I can't see the other larger document being changed. It is too hard to get 27 countries to agree to that. 
Yeah, so it's a massive number of stakeholders and we already it saw is, how difficult right. it was yes. yeah, yeah, to get some of yep. those members on board with certain topics or issues. Exactly, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, yep. You said mm-hmm. there that the EU is bracing for a no deal or a no yes, Brexit. Right. There are mm-hmm. some businesses, particularly large multinationals or corporations who have also been making mm-hmm. plans in case yes. Brexit didn't happen. What are some of the flow-on effects to the economy um, if there is no Brexit and if these companies have to uh, put in place their Plan B? Yeah, uh, these companies are already preparing for Plan B. Re- it's really interesting that it was actually the Japanese government which was the first to put out a statement about this, and they did that in the September after the June vote, um, after Brexit. And what they said was, look, we really are concerned about the number of Japanese companies based in the UK, and we think that you should make sure that there is complete alignment with the single market for goods and services, uh, particularly. Um, but they were also concerned about their skilled workers. So it's really an interesting thing because we, we didn't expect the Japanese to come out with this and in such a firm way. And Prime Minister Abe has actually made statements to this effect um, several times. Now, you now then have situations where many people who have their headquarters for their companies in the UK, because you can have them anywhere, um, the, including many Australian companies, I mean, this is really a challenge to see should we move elsewhere. So already um, Dublin, um, Amsterdam, Frankfurt and Paris are already seeing some parts of companies moving um, there. Not necessarily the full companies yet. We're not, we may be looking at that. But what we're going to see is because the UK has very, very efficient financial services based in London, one of the best in the world, what happens is if you're a financial services firm, well, then you can provide services anywhere within the European Union and you don't need Mm. any further authorization. Now, that may sound technical, but it means that, for instance, if you've got an Australian bank that's based in London, it is now going to have a challenge. There's a a funny name for it. It's called passporting, which is... um, which means basically to provide authorization for services so that a company can actually work across any borders in the 28 countries. Now that the country that actually has these very efficient financial services in the city of London won't actually be part of it, you're going to be looking at a different type of regulation. And at the moment, there's no agreement between the EU and the UK to have that UK state regulator um, actually having the same rules as the EU regulators on financial services firms. So that means that an Australian company, rather than having its headquarters, for instance, or a US company um, in the UK, could have a subsidiary in the UK, but it would need to have about 60%, the number changes, um, really based in an EU member state. And so this is going to be very, very difficult for many companies that are very comfortable with the UK, comfortable with the language, knowing mm. that the regulations are the same across all 28 countries. So this is a real challenge um, for the UK itself, but also for those countries that um, have or those companies, which really are quite comfortable uh, within the UK context of having that as their main base. Yes, well, it makes sense uh, in terms of, I guess, the cultural and language um, Yep. Things, yeah, 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 that yep. exist in mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, yep. Philomena, 
we're nearly out of time, but I just wanted to uh, quickly get your, um, I guess, not prediction, because I don't think anyone should need to predict on such an evolving, um, unpredictable area, but what do you think would be the best outcome in terms of the situation that the UK now finds themselves in? Um, in terms of what would be a ben- of benefit for the UK, mm. um, actually going ahead and taking action on the basis of the Court of Justice um, a, a statement, um, in other words, staying within the UK, within the European Union, would be most beneficial for um, the UK economy and for the UK society. If that is not to take place, this withdrawal agreement is a good, sound agreement, giving the UK pretty much most of what it wanted, and that um, is something that would be better than a hard Brexit where there is, they are pulling out of every aspect of, um, of the market and indeed where the peace in Northern Ireland could be um, undergoing some serious challenges. Mm. Well, it's now in the hands of politicians, but yes. as we've said and have observed, it certainly hasn't stopped a lot of uh, people observing and putting their two cents or two pounds Mm. in on Mm. this Mm -hmm. particular issue so (laughs) it'll be very interesting to watch and i really thank you very much for your expertise on this it's been very illuminating terrific questions and um, (laughs) it's always a pleasure it was great to have you hopefully we can chat about this in the new year no doubt we'll see what um, has happened in the meantime yes Yes. thank you so (laughs) much philomena thank you amy You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.